Welcome back to another episode of the CSKA podcast. My name is Jared O'Leary. Each week of the podcast alternates between an unpacking scholarship episode, where I talk about latest scholarship or some seminal papers in relation to CS education, and episodes where I interview a guest or multiple guests. In this week's particular episode, I'm interviewing Mark Guzdal, and we discuss the similarities and differences between constructionism and constructivism. We think through when to situate and apply learning. We discuss contextualized learning. We also discuss creating multiple pathways for exploring computer science and problematize subservient relationships with integrated curricula or courses. We talk about Mark's task-specific and domain-specific languages, and I discuss how I use multiple learning theories through what I describe as a multi-perspectivalist approach. We chat through changes to public policy that Mark would make to help out CS educators in the field, and so much more. In the show notes, I list a bunch of links to people and papers and resources that we mention in this particular interview. So make sure you check them out by going to the app that you're listening to this on and clicking on the link or simply going to jaredoleary.com and clicking on the podcast tab. Now you notice there's a bunch more resources that are relevant to CS educators in the different tabs on the website, including a link to bootuppd.org, which is where I create a 100% free to use curriculum for Scratch Junior and Scratch that elementary, even middle school, and even some high school students are using literally around the world, which is pretty awesome. It's all free to use, so make sure you check it out if you haven't done so yet. Also, if these topics interest you, make sure to reach out to Mark at the end. Mark shares his contact information, or you can reach out to me if you'd also like to collaborate on a future research project, or even to be a guest on this particular podcast. But with all that being said, we will now begin with an introduction by Mark. I'm a professor in computer science and engineering at the University of Michigan, and I have a courtesy appointment as a professor of information in the University of Michigan School of Information. I think professor of information is such a cool title. For 25 years, I was a professor at the College of Computing at Georgia Tech, and that's probably where I did most of the work that people know me from. I came here in 2018. I am a computing education researcher, so I study how people come to understand computing and how we can make that process work better. I'm probably best known for curriculum development. I developed a way of teaching introductory computing called media computation, where students manipulate pixels of a picture to create things like Photoshop effects or Snapchat filters, manipulate frames of a video to implement digital video special effects, manipulate samples of a sound to reverse sounds or scale them or echo them or splice them together. I also did work in public policy for about 12 years, from 2006 to 2012. We had a project, an NSF Broadening Participation in Computing Alliance called Georgia Computes, where we tried to improve computing education across all levels in the entire state of Georgia. Barbara Erickson and I, with Renee Fall and Rick Adrian from Massachusetts, the Commonwealth Alliance for IT Education, formed ESEP, the Expanding Computing Education Pathways Alliance, where we worked with 16 states in Puerto Rico to improve their computing education policy. And then I came to the realization that we're never going to reach CS for all via CS classes. And so the work that I now do at the University of Michigan is about trying to develop new kinds of programming tools to facilitate integrating computing into lots of other subjects. So how did you get into CS education? So sort of a fun accident. When I was in high school in the early 1980s, I was in one of the few high schools in the country, probably at the time, that had multiple computer science courses. I took BASIC when I was 
16 years old and I took Fortran and COBOL. Those sound really ancient, but I guess I'm pretty old now. And I started teaching computing in February of 1980. I was 17 years old. The local adult education program, you know, night school where you can pick up fun classes, local community education reached out to one of my computer science teachers in my high school and said, we'd really love for you to teach adults about these new personal computers that are coming along, like Apple IIs. Can you teach them about it? And she said, no, I don't. But if you think it'd be kind of fun, I've got this geeky kid in my class, so I think he could do it. So I got signed up. I taught a class called Bits, Bytes, and Basic. And we talked about what microprocessors were and how memory worked. And I taught a little bit of AppleSoft Basic. And then I went to Wayne State University for undergrad here in Detroit. And I taught all throughout undergrad. I continued to teach adult ed until I was teaching four or five nights a week, some semesters. I taught middle grades, after school programs. I even started teaching GED classes. I had enough hours built up by my junior and senior year that I could qualify as vocational education teacher. So I was teaching high school GED classes, community college. And then when I went off for my master's degree, I taught logo on Saturdays in a workshop setting to elementary school kids. In 1982, I had a summer internship at Bell Labs, which was just fabulous. It literally changed my life. I'd never worked with other students from places like Purdue and MIT and Stanford. I was like, wow, this is amazing. <laughs> and that's when I discovered, I took a class on Unix shell. And for some reason, they started talking about small talk. And I looked it up and discovered Alan Kay and Dan Ingalls and Adele Goldberg. And I read the paper, Personal Dynamic Media. And that's when I decided I wanted to go to graduate school because this idea of building computing explicitly for the goal of facilitating learning, that just changed things for me. My first publication ever was at Logo 84, the International Logo Conference. I still have my acceptance letter from Hal Abelson at MIT. I had built an object-oriented logo in 1987. An education professor here at the University of Michigan, Bob Cosma, reached out to me and said, we want to do a joint PhD in education and computer science. But the way it works at Michigan is you have to send a few students through doing that as an individualized degree program before you can turn it into a regular program. And he asked me if I'd be willing to do it. So I came here to Michigan, started my PhD, and then Elliot Soloway came here. It was amazing coincidence luck for me because there's probably not a better person for me to have been working with to do computing education research in the 1980s and early 90s. And then I graduated in 93 and went to Georgia Tech. So I had been teaching for eight years, almost every night before I started graduate school. So I had a surprising amount of experience for a new PhD student. So I was past the point of, I find teaching cool. And to the point where I said, there's got to be a, I mean, teaching is still cool. I still love to teach, but it wasn't just the activity of teaching. I wanted to figure out how to do it better. What does it mean to teach computer science? Well, that was the research question that I got it started with. So one of the things that I'm really interested in is like how people's understandings of teaching or a subject area kind of like shift and evolve over, over time. So I'm curious, like what's something when you first began teaching that you believed that you no longer believe? So as you probably know, I have been blogging for a very long time. I started in 2009 and have just continued doing it probably way too much. 
you can find both my blog posts where I say things that are I now know are wrong and the blog posts where I correct myself. This has happened several times, like in 2010. Yeah, in 2010, people were writing blog posts. What I learned in the last 10 years, what are the great accomplishments I've had in the 10 years? I wrote the 10 years worth of things that I got wrong. So there's a blog post of all the things that I got wrong during the 2010s. One of them, probably the biggest one, is that when we started Georgia Computes and even when into doing ESEP, Expanding Computing Education Pathways Alliance, I was really convinced that access would drive participation, that we would have broadening participation in computing once there was enough computer science classes that it was easy for diverse range of students to get access to computing education. And I think we've now shown that's just completely wrong. Hmm. That in several states, we're up to 40 to 50% of the high schools offer some computer science. And in no state in the union are there more than 10% of the kids taking computer science, high school age kids. And it's much lower in Texas, it's, it's less than 3%, same as in California. My former student, Dr. Miranda Parker, did a PhD on what influences high schools in Georgia to offer computer science or not. So she knows pretty exactly that it's like 43% of Georgia high schools offer computer science and only 2.5% of the high school students take computer science. Hmm. And I've always thought, you know, since I was a young kid, computing is just so cool. And I am increasingly realizing that computing isn't so cool for lots of people. For a lot of kids, it's a negative thing. One of the things that I've observed is that if you offer an undergraduate degree in computing and don't call it computer science, it will be much more diverse than the ones named computer science. Hmm. Undergraduate programs in informatics and computational media and even computational forensics, computational medical informatics turns out to be a really big one that are much more diverse than computer science. I think that we have created some pretty negative stereotypes about computer science. And teachers have some pretty low self-efficacy about computing. So let's see, another thing, I am a fallen constructionist. I used to believe in constructionism with the big N, the way that Seymour Papert talked about it, that learning happens best when you're making things. And then I realized that may be true, but you can't make things for all the things that we want kids to know. We want kids to learn a lot of different things. Having them engage in construction on every single one of them, they're not that interested. We don't need that deep of an engagement. And it's expensive to try to get that level of engagement in all subjects with all kids. So I've been doing Duolingo Spanish for, I think I'm nearly at 1500 days. Nice. For a long time. And don't ask me to write a letter or a poem or an essay in Spanish. I can't do it yet. I can pick out words. I can solve Spanish puzzles. I can start to read some things, but I really can't. I'm just not that engaged. I don't get to speak Spanish on a regular basis. Mm. So that is too high of a bar. I will likely disengage at that level. Yeah, that resonates a lot. I'm learning in Japanese just like on my own using Duolingo, other platforms and whatnot. It's very difficult. And I'm curious with the constructionism and you had mentioned constructivism on your blog, like what do you see as some of like the similarities and differences between those two different approaches? Because constructivism was like came before Papert came up with constructionism. It was built off of that. So there's three different things and only two different words, which makes it really confusing. 
So the original constructivism is John Piaget's theory about how we learn, that all of learning is a conscious process of trying to make sense of the world. Now, there's a lot of people disagree with Piaget now. I know that Ken Cadinger at CMU has been talking about how important the unconscious aspects of learning are. And there's this whole movement around implicit learning or the way that we learn second language as well. But I think constructivism is a fair theory that still explains how most learning in classrooms occurs, that there's these processes called assimilation and accommodation, and it's about trying to make sense of your world. Constructivism as a pedagogical approach says, well, if constructivism is how people learn, and it's all about individuals making sense of their world, we should give individuals the ability to construct their own curriculum and learn in what way makes sense for them. And that's taking Piaget a little bit too far. Piaget's theory explains how you learn from reading a book. It explains how you learn from listening to a lecture. Those things do occur. It's not the case that the only way learning happens is by individuals constructing their own opportunities to learn or constructing their own curriculum. Constructionism with the N is this argument that Seymour Papert made that learning happens, and he uses this fabulous phrase, especially felicitously. He doesn't use a word like best. It's not clear what especially felicitously means, but that students learn especially felicitously when they are constructing a public artifact, whether a sandcastle on the beach or a theory of the universe. So it's a particular approach that says, you know, when you're engaged in designing and constructing, and it's something that other people are going to look at, that's a terrific place to do learning. And I think that's absolutely true. But I don't think we can do that for all kids. So then how do you situate or apply understandings within an educational setting? Because I agree with you, like, it wouldn't make sense to have everybody, like, let's say, build a rocket, like an actual rocket to go to the moon. But you could engage in simulations and whatnot to actually construct something like that. But then something more abstract, you might only be able to engage in dialogue about, like, uh, more heavy topics like genocide. Like, you clearly wouldn't want people to apply something related to that, but you want to engage in a discussion and learn from it. Sure, of course not. Yeah. I think that you get to ideas like backwards design and thinking about what is it that you're trying to achieve. A lot of years ago, Cindy Himelo-Silver, she's a professor of learning sciences at Indiana University. When Cindy was a postdoc at Georgia Tech, she and I wrote a paper about glass box and black box scaffolding. That sometimes you have scaffolding that you're providing to students, especially when they're using a computer-based system, where you want that scaffolding to fade and you want them to understand how the scaffolding works. We call that glass box scaffolding. I'm gonna give you some supports, but I'm gonna show you exactly what I'm doing so that when I take it away, you know what I was doing and I'm helping with it. There's other times that I'm teaching you with black box scaffolding. I don't want you to ever have to deal with this part of it because I want you to skip over that part so that you can go do the part that's really relevant to your learning, right? In some sense, all programming languages are black box scaffolding. I don't really want you to see the assembler code underneath. I don't need you to understand the interpreter or compiler. I just want you to be able to do the thing like using Sonic Pi for learning about music composition, right? I don't want you to know how Sonic Pi works. It's black box scaffolding. I think we have to figure out what it is that we're trying to help students learn. Building a rocket to the moon is such a fabulous activity for kids who are interested in STEM, but not all kids are interested in STEM. If I want to grow up to be a playwright, you making me build a rocket to the moon is going to be this painful activity. 
And what do I really want you to learn? You know, I think it's probably important for everybody to know how much effort it takes to get a rocket free of Earth's gravity. And that's why space travel is so expensive. And so I want citizens to know that so that they realize, okay, if you really want space travel, you're going to have to give big budgets to places like NASA because that's what it's going to take. And I think that is important for everybody to know. But everybody doesn't have to know how to design a rocket to achieve that kind of technological citizenry kind of understanding and literacy. So I'm curious what your perspectives are. You had mentioned like the CS for all movements and whatnot, like especially in the younger grades where it is required, like the districts that we work with at boot up, like it's required that everybody across the district is taking the computer science class by the time we finish our implementation with them. How do you recommend keeping kids engaged? Because not everyone's going to enjoy the same thing. Like I love music and we'll code music all day long if I could, but I would be less interested in, in doing something else in another area. Even if it's through the same medium, through the same platform, through the same language, the thing that I create, I just might be like, eh, I don't really care about that, but I'd love to do this other thing. I think this is where this idea of contextualized computing education comes in, that when we developed media computation, we explicitly developed it to solve a problem. Our problem was that Georgia Tech decided in 1999 to require all incoming undergraduates to take a course in computer science. And the definition of what that course had to achieve, the learning objectives were pretty stiff. They said that after the class, you should be able to make algorithmic and data structure choices when writing a program, which means that I've got to show you two different ways of coding the same thing and two different data structures for doing the same thing and give you the facility to understand the choices that you're making when choosing between those. So this is already a pretty hefty intro computer science class to achieve that. For the first four years of this requirement, there was only one course that met the requirement, the one that was originally created for CS majors. And overall, the course had about a, about a 79% pass rate, which for an intro course in just about anything is pretty good. That's aggregated by major. Engineers and computer scientists and scientists we're doing great at the class. Liberal arts, architecture design, and business management students were passing the course at about a 50% rate. So every semester, about half the students got through from those majors, and students started talking about three-peating the class. By the third time, almost everybody passes. And this becomes a real problem then. So we decided to create three different intro computer science classes, one for computer scientists and scientists, and that became a course in programming robots in Python one for engineers, and that became a programming course in MATLAB. And then I got the liberal arts, architecture, design, business management students. I formed an advisory committee of faculty in those other disciplines because they should be the ones telling me what their students need to know about computing in their discipline. And the big insight, one of the students I was working with, Andrea Forte, who's now a professor at Drexel, she came up with this really pithy phrase that for these students, Computing is less about calculation and more about communication. What they're going to use the computer the most for is digital media. They're going to produce videos and presentations and graphics, and they're going to care about, well, how does Photoshop work anyway? And what does it mean when I drag a line in a PowerPoint? And why is that different than making a line in Photoshop? And how does digital sound editing work anyway? And how do you make people disappear in a video? Those are all the things that we built the class around. And so we were explicitly building on what makes sense for those students for their values. 
that's still part of the insight of what I'm trying to do today with task-specific programming languages. I'm trying to say, I want to make programming so easy that you can learn the language and be useful in it in less than 10 minutes. And if it's in less than 10 minutes, it's got to be tuned to a particular task, not just a whole domain, to a particular task. And if it's tuned to a particular task, I can change the user interface. In HCI, we know something about how to make programming work well for particular tasks. And if it takes only 10 minutes to learn, use it for a one hour lesson, and then you throw it away. The return on investment is already there. So it isn't gonna be a big language. It's not likely gonna be Turing complete, but now I can think about multiple languages. And if you don't like this language, you know, if you're the playwright who's being forced to do something with a simulation of the rocket ship, that's okay, it's only one class period. You'll do something different the next class period. So we can think about programming in lots of different places, in lots of different kinds of courses for lots of different kinds of tasks. So instead of a big language like Scratch or Snap that you're gonna use for a lot of things, how about little languages that sum totaled? You know, maybe if you see a half dozen of these little languages before you see your first computer science class, will that be enough that it will help you? I'm curious. I've got like at least a dozen or so articles that I can point to where in the abstract it specifically states like the purpose of doing these like cross-curricular connections in higher education was for increasing enrollment numbers in computer science. And to me, that puts it in like the arts and other subject areas in a subservient relationship. The way that you described this is not that. It is very symbiotic in that it is complementing both or all of the subject areas that are in there. I'm curious, like, how... Do you design for, plan for that kind of an approach as opposed to the subservient relationship? Oh, I love this question because to me, it's the heart of what I'm doing now. I do participatory design with teachers. So for example, I have a big project with Tammy Schreiner, who is a social studies education researcher at Grand Valley State. She's in the history department there. And as she puts it to me, most people who become a history teacher don't choose that because they love numbers, data, and computers. But as her research shows, most state standards now require social studies teachers to teach about data literacy and explicitly to teach how to read, interpret, understand, critique, and argue with data visualizations. So suddenly these history teachers are being pushed into the position of having to have kids make graphs, charts, to be able to read maps and timelines. How do they do that? They have a need. Computing can really serve that need. I work with teachers to figure out what meets their needs. I think that we in computer science do too little, particularly those of us looking at integrating, do too little to pay attention to the teachers. We do a lot of things with, well, the kids really like this, the kids are enjoying this activity, and that's great, but you don't get into the classroom unless the teacher buys in. The teacher's the gateway to the classroom. And while we can reach a lot of kids via informal education, in the United States, we have mandatory schooling. Everybody is in school. And so if you can get computing that a teacher says, yes, this actually helps me teach something in history that I know I'm supposed to teach, but I'm a little bit afraid of it, but this tool helps me, that's a huge win. That's what we're trying to do. So I work closely with teachers to make sure that I am meeting their needs. So we do participatory design activities where I put in front of teachers several different tools and have them compare each of them and say, I like this part of this one. I hate this part of this one. 
I tell my students as we're building the prototype. So when we do this with a group of social studies teachers, we intermix our tools with other people's tools and we don't tell them which is which so that we can get a fair understanding about what the value is. And I tell my students, we are building things in order for teachers to say, oh, I see what you're doing here. Yeah, that really sucks. Let me tell you what would make it good. That's what we really live for. Right. Right. Because that's when we know that we're getting to something that could be useful in a classroom. So we've been making data visualization tools for graphs and charts. We've got another one for timelines that we're building. And we're creating another one that helps middle school students in order to be able to identify the elements of a graph, be able to say, oh, that's what the, the legend is telling me. That's what the x-axis labels are telling me, things like that. I want computing to be in service. Computing is changing fields all over the world from computational science and engineering to computational journalism. If I can't help a history teacher figure out how to use computing well, then I'm not doing a good job with the computing. At what point does it go too far, though, where it puts like computer science into like that subservient relationship where it's not necessarily helping somebody understand computer science? Or does that matter? I think that's a really great question that I think we know too little about. Mm. So because of these task specific languages, we're literally building languages that teachers are able to learn and use in less than 10 minutes, which does create this opportunity to ask, well, what if you saw a whole bunch of them and they had different notional machines? They thought about programming in different ways. Does that help you in getting a broader notion about what computing is? I hope so, but I need to build a bunch of these and have these in different classes to be able to ask this kind of a question. I mean, it's a hard question to ask. I have this broad vision. I also think that we overestimate what people are learning or can learn about computing. If you consider this, what I was telling you about ESEP, that there is no state in the union, there are some Northeastern states where they're up to 9% of their high school students are taking computer science, but in no state is it over 10%. That means that we have not introduced computing to about 90% of the high school students in the United States. We don't know what the challenges are yet. We know what the challenges are with the students who come into our classes, but they're a pretty biased, self-selected group. And I think that we're going to find that there are a whole bunch of really hard ideas that we haven't yet identified as being hard. Here's one that we're starting to identify. Our teachers, the history teachers who come into our workshops, for the most part, have never seen HTML. The whole idea of here is one representation, HTML or code, that generates this other representation, a web page or an execution or a visualization, they've never seen that before. The idea of a computer as a device that transforms representations is a novel concept. I think that's the sort of thing that we have to think about. We actually have to teach that. That's a hard idea. But that comes before anything that we could teach about coding. Yeah, I think it also requires a lot of shifts both in pedagogical approaches, but also in the way things are designed. So I co-authored this paper that was talking about like the neoliberal culture in music technology and how we are creating these artifacts that are not meant to be modified in any way. And that is forcing certain kinds of music engagement and limiting others or preventing others. And so what we argue in that paper is just basically if we learn from like, I don't know if you're familiar with like chip tunes and chip musicians and like the whole mod culture scene, both with the hardware and software uh, modifications that people do around video games. If we took that kind of 
way of being an approach to technology and applied it to other things like a physical thing or even software, then we could start thinking of, well, what are the affordances and constraints of this hardware or software? And what can we do to actually get rid of some of those constraints and make it do something new that we couldn't previously do? And thinking beyond what is and rather thinking about what could be. I think that's really cool. I strongly agree with the argument that you're making. Something that I've complained about in my blog is I would like to move media computation to other platforms, but being able to access individual samples of a sound turns out to be something which is not well supported cross-platform on very many languages. I can do it in Java. Because I can do it in Java, I can do it in Jython, which is what I taught at Georgia Tech for a lot of years. It's Python implemented in Java, so I can use my Java libraries. I can do it in Squeak, I can do it in Snap, and I can do it in JavaScript. But for example, I can't do it in CPython yet. It doesn't let me do everything that I'd want to do with sound samples and work exactly the same on all platforms. I find that shocking. I mean, samples of a sound, just give me a sound buffer, any sound buffer, and I can do what I need to do with it. Right. And I can't get that in a lot of different languages. And that's really surprising to me. So yes, I agree with that notion. The idea of being able to hack the hardware and to make it do new things, I strongly agree with. I want students to understand the technology well enough that they can build things that I wouldn't have thought of. And we already see that happens. The things that we're building for math teachers, I'm really blown away. They say, you know, I have a particular way that I designed it and I have it do this. And they start doing this other thing. It's like, I didn't know it would do that. It does? Well, that's cool. <laughs> right. I love that idea. I really come to this task of building task-specific programming languages as an HCI designer. I think that it's really cool to be able to, you know, stick wires into the video game and change the way the circuitry works. But I don't know how to make that accessible for a teacher with low self-efficacy about computing. So I am trying to do user-centered and even learner-centered design of technology. And I want to do that in such a way that the technology is flexible. But I also want to make sure that I do that with an understanding of not everybody wants to geek out, but I do want to reach CS for all. I want things to be accessible. Yeah, that's a good point. I know going back to like the mod culture, there are some like video game developers that will actually release like tutorials of how to modify games. Like, so you want to change the sound in this and make it so that it's all human sounds instead of the sounds that we created? Cool. Here's like a little tutorial on how to do that. So that can definitely help with the people who have like the low self-efficacy and are unable to like create something that they're unable to do or think through it rather. I'm curious, going back to like the constructivism, constructionism, what are some things that people misunderstand about either approach? The big misunderstanding about constructivism is that Jean Piaget explicitly eschewed implications for education. He saw himself as an epistemologist. He saw himself at most maybe a developmental psychologist. He cared about how ideas formed in children's minds. And Piaget says that we ought to have kids work with building blocks. It's too far. That's not what Piaget said. I think that this radical constructionist approach, which says, if I tell you something, then I have stolen from you the opportunity to figure it out from yourself. And I'm not a radical constructivist. I don't buy that notion. 
Rather, I tend to draw on cognitive science, things like worked examples, that telling people things tends to increase student self-efficacy. They feel, oh yeah, I can get this then. Now, there are things like expertise reversal effects that a lot of scaffolding, a lot of guidance starts to become a hindrance as people develop expertise. But for novices, I think that we too soon try to fade our scaffolding, that we try to remove the supports. I sometimes get into fights with computer science teachers who say, well, I think that the unit tests should just give you a green or red. You either got it or you didn't get it. And I point out, well, the unit tests actually have a lot of error messages and feedback you could give to the students. Yeah, but if we give them that, they won't try to figure it out for themselves. And I think that's wrong. So I am not a radical constructivist. I tend to believe in providing scaffolding and providing work examples and explaining things to people. And my read of the cognitive psychology suggests that that's a better way of teaching than asking students to figure it all out for themselves. My first advisor for my PhD was Pat Baggett, who's an experimental cognitive psychologist. Pat had this saying, not every kid is a Newton. Isaac Newton looked at the world and saw it in radically different ways than all the people that came before him. You can't expect kids to just look at light and say, oh, well, I think this is the way light travels. It takes a lot of insight to recognize that there's a difference between dynamics and kinematics. You can study velocity and acceleration without considering force, and you can consider force separate from thinking about motion. Those are really deep ideas, and we're better off teaching kids the big principles, the organizing big ideas, rather than expect them to figure it out for themselves. If I were to describe my own approach, I'd say that I'm a multi-perspectivalist in that I'm taking many different approaches or perspectives and trying to apply it to fit the situation or the individual that I'm working with in particular. So like when I've worked with undergrad students in particular, and even some of the grad students that I taught, they often view this as like this false binary of, well, I have to either go 100% on constructivism or I'm doing it wrong or 100% on constructionism. And it's like, well, no, I mean, like there are moments where it makes sense. Like if you want to give somebody like a high powered electrical tool, you probably don't want them to figure out whether or not it'll cut them or hurt them or maim them. Like you probably want to go through some direct instruction in the beginning. That might make more sense than constructionist or constructivism practices that are typically talked about. Like, yes, understand this theory, but also understand its limitations and understand where other theories and ways of learning might be more beneficial for that particular situation. So I'm curious for your own perspective, like either in your research or your own pedagogical practices, like are there other theories or philosophies or approaches that have informed yours, even if it's just like something that you have felt through your own experiences, not necessarily somebody that you can cite? I draw a lot on situated learning, Gene Lave and Etienne Wenger. Yep. I think when I first started doing the media computation is when I really started realizing there's this whole issue of motivation and sociocognitive issues in learning, sociocultural issues in learning that I really wasn't taking into account when I came at it entirely from a cognitive or educational psychology perspective. So the idea that all of learning is a development of an identity, that when students are learning computer science, they might be learning in order to become a computer scientist, or maybe they're learning in order to become a computational journalist or computational engineer or a computational artist or a computational musician, that understanding the community of practice to which they want to join is critical to understand what's going to motivate them. A lot of the work that we do 
in media computation, but also in work like Katie Cunningham's new purpose-first programming is drawing from expectancy value theory. If you reject something because it's counter to your identity, then you're simply not going to learn it. And so we need to think about how do we present things that have a connection to the identity that you're developing. And then expectancy value theory also talks about utility. Is this fun for you? Is this something that you want to do? And cost, how expensive is it? So by reducing the complexity of the programming language, of improving the scaffolding that we provide, we can reduce cognitive load, we reduce cost. And if we also make it more fun, if we also connect it more to their identity, we increase benefit. So situated learning and expectancy value theory are two of the theories that I draw on a lot and how I think about my research. I just had the opportunity this last semester to teach my first engineering education research class, which was great fun because the course was on theoretical and conceptual frameworks of engineering education research. And we covered a whole bunch of theoretical frameworks that I'd never used before. And they were really pretty amazing. So I'm now a big fan of variation theory, which says I can teach you X. There's a whole lot about X that you're really not gonna understand until I show you X prime too. And you realize there's differences between X and X prime. And I really like that a lot in understanding how I have to give students more than one way of viewing the world if I really want them to understand the nuance of a particular approach. And then I also had my first introduction to critical feminist and critical race theory, which I'd never really drawn on before. I just did my first blog post where I tried to use critical feminist theory because these are really important perspectives if I want to draw on a diverse student body. So I'm learning a lot about all of these. Yeah, I like that. I too am continuing to learn. I'm curious from the situated learning, have you read James Paul G? Yeah, I just read, I've just did my first reading, his piece on identity and the four different types of identities. That was pretty important in my class. Yeah, he was a professor of mine. So I took his discourse analysis course, which ended up like I used corpus assisted discourse analysis for my dissertation. And so like I took his class on discourse analysis and I've read pretty much all of his books. He's like very heavily influenced my own thinking in terms of like the situated understandings and whatnot. So a lot of what you're saying is like, wow, this sounds a lot like G. So that makes sense that you've read him. <laughs> well, only a little bit. I want to dive more into it. I haven't read much of G on discourse analysis. I know it exists because I see it referenced when I'm reading the stuff on identity, but more things that I have to learn about yet. <laughs> yeah, well, he built his understandings of like affinity spaces and situated learning and whatnot off of Laven Wenger. So like that was coming from there. So you're starting with like the roots and whatnot of a lot of his discussions. But so you had mentioned that you've written a lot of blog posts, like one of them, it was a while ago, you had crossed over like a thousand blog posts at that point, like it was like blog post 999. I'm curious, what has surprised you over all of those blog posts that you've written about? I can never predict when a blog post is going to take off. I'll put so much effort into this one blog. I mean, sometimes I will take weeks to write a particular blog post. I'll be developing the ideas. I'll get feedback from other people. And then I'll put it out there and it just goes, boop. you know, people read it. And then there'll be no discussion. And then other times I'll put out a blog post. They're just, oh, okay, this is what I'm thinking about right now. And I'll get all this Twitter responses and all kinds of comments and I'll have annoyed somebody. So that's sort of been the biggest surprise. What are the social trends? And sometimes you hit a blog post that are touching on huge social trends. 
And then other times, because Google, you know, will index my blogs, I'll find an old blog post that suddenly explodes. And I don't really know why, though it's fascinating. My two most read blog posts, I think still are the one I wrote on cognitivism versus cognitivism versus constructionism, and one on disaggregating Asian American attainment. We tend to talk about Asian Americans as doing very well in terms of traditional academic success. But it turns out that if you disaggregate the different Asian countries, you get very different success rates. It makes sense. There's different cultures, there's different socioeconomic status. And it's totally obvious in hindsight. And this was just Rick Adrian had shared with me a report and I just shared this graph. And then one day it's like, your blog post has just had 10,000 hits today. I'm like, what? <laughs> because I've blogged for a long time and tried to blog on the things that I don't see elsewhere, I don't blog as much anymore because now there's a whole bunch of stuff on computing education, CSTA and CS for all. And there's a lot of folks that are producing material. I can stay in my niche, just computing education research. I don't have to draw on all these different places. But I'm still, I'm trying to post the things that I'm not seeing elsewhere that I think are important for people to see, for people to think about. Recently, I've been blogging on the difference between computing education and engineering education. Because in Europe, there are several centers for computing and CS education research. And in the United States, most computing education research that if there's an academic unit formed around it, it's about engineering education research or computing and engineering education research. The new Succeed Center was just set up at Florida International University, which is the Universal Computing, Construction, and Engineering Education. I forget what the D stands for, but that's where the Succeed comes in. That's really interesting. Buffalo has a engineering education research program with several computing education researchers there. So I'm struck by the distinctions between computing and engineering education and the fact that Europe tends to see them as being more distinct. In the U.S., we tend to clump them together. Engineering education doesn't do a lot with K-12. through In fact, there's a National Academy report on K-12 through standards for engineering education. And if you read the report, you find that it doesn't have standards in it. The report said we decided not to. And it gives their reasons why. Much of engineering education, and it's going to sound like just a totally obvious statement, but it's been a revelation for me. Engineering education is about producing engineers. Computing education is not necessarily about producing computer scientists, because there are so many other disciplines that need to know about computing to further their goals. And all of K through 12 computing education can't be just about being a Silicon Valley jobs program. It can't be we're teaching everybody in K-12 about computing in order for them to become programmers. Computing education tends to be broader and serving different diverse identities, that it's not just about becoming an engineer. Yeah, so one of the reasons why, one of the many reasons why I came up with the idea of starting this podcast and alternating between like the interviews and then talking about scholarship is I felt like CS education in K-12 settings in particular weren't talking about some of the topics that I really wish they were discussing. Like I mentioned before we started recording like pedagogy of the press, like that should be something that people understand and know and discuss. And a problem that I've seen in academic publishing 
is it takes forever. Like I literally just received a couple weeks ago a handbook that I wrote a chapter for, and my first draft that I submitted was in 2017, and I just received this in 2021. So it takes that long sometimes for these publications to come through. So you have an opportunity to reach a large number of individuals just by posting something on your blog. And I'm curious, through that, you're able to kind of guide some of the discussions. But what do you wish more people in the field were talking about that you have tried to initiate conversations on? Wow, that's great. A big one is teachers. As I mentioned, I'm doing all participatory design work now. And there's so little work on how do you design for teachers. There's lots of work on how to design for children. But, and that's important work. It's important to be able to figure out how to design for elementary school kids versus middle school kids versus high school kids. I saw a great talk by Paul Goldenberg last summer that made me realize how hard it is for a third grader to click and drag with the trackpad. The physical motion of clicking down here and holding your finger down while you drag it somewhere and release it, that's kind of hard for them. That had never occurred to me. Designing in those ways is really important. But in general, kids find acceptable a wider variety of technologies and interfaces than teachers do. Kids like lots of things that don't help them achieve particular educational standards. Teachers need to achieve educational standards. That's literally the job. So designing for teachers is a much harder task. I worry that sometimes technology developers and curriculum developers sort of cheat by playing directly to the kids. Ah, kids will like this. Well, yeah, but kids don't necessarily know what's good for them. Getting teachers to like it means you've got to argue with an adult, another adult who is at your same level and understands things that you don't. And so I think it's really important for us to figure out how to talk to teachers. I'm also really interested in the growing body of literature that says CS faculty, undergraduate faculty, are more resistant to change than other STEM teachers. Really? Huh. Yeah. So there's this wonderful paper by Charles Henderson, this big survey of like 2,000 physics teachers. And I'm going to get the numbers wrong, but it's something like, 70% of them knew two or more research-based methods, and 50 to 60% of them had tried one of them in their classroom. Similar surveys of CS teachers find the numbers are more like 12%. Wow. CS undergraduate faculty, I mean, they're dealing with huge numbers. A lot of universities have just overwhelming enrollment these days. There's not a culture of we ought to get better at our teaching yet. STEM education chemistry, biology, physics, they've all been doing it long enough that there are really well-developed discipline-based education research communities, DIVERS. Computer science is really new. ASCE, the American Society for Engineering Education, is like 126, 127 years old, something like that. National Council of Teachers of Mathematics was founded in 1920. The American Association of Physics Teachers was founded in 1950. And the Computer Science Teachers Association was founded in 2004. We just know so little about CS teaching and how to influence CS teaching and how to disseminate good practices out to computer science teachers. There's a lot of assumptions that we make about teaching computer science that are based on the fact that so much of programming and computer science has grown out of industrial practice. So our languages weren't designed to be easy to learn. They were designed to serve the needs of software engineers. That's why Python and Java and C++ 
These were all why they were established. And somewhere along the line, people made the argument that the first language didn't matter. The idea was any language, you're just gonna learn the concepts. And I think all the data that we have says that's wrong. And I'm kind of curious as to where we ever got that idea in the first place. My hypothesis is because the early programmers were all really good at math. And so they transferred their knowledge of math into different languages. But if you learn a language for music, for example, and now I'm gonna teach you web scraping, it's not at all obvious why you think there would be any transfer from Sonic Pi to working with Beautiful Soup in Python. I think the first language matters a lot. Yeah, I agree. We mentioned before the recording the conversation, like talking about how I was unsure how kids would do going from syntax light to syntax heavy. Whereas the other way around, they might feel liberated. Finally, I don't have to worry about semicolons, curly braces. But when they all of a sudden have to add that in, it's like, well, why do I need to add in all that extra junk? There's this really interesting body of research, which when I tell it to CS teachers, they're often very skeptical, but it's actually been replicated a couple of times. If you're going to teach both iteration and recursion, you should teach iteration first because recursion is actually an easier concept. There's a bunch of evidence that says if you teach recursion first, students will just want to do recursion all the time. And then when you try to teach them a for loop in JavaScript, that's a pretty complicated thing. And they're like, why do I have to learn all that? Why can't I just keep doing recursion? And so it turns out that if you do iteration recursion, recursion is hard then because, well, it doesn't look like iteration and you don't specify all the things the way that you did on iteration. And so there's this negative transfer from iteration to recursion. But if you have to do both, iteration before recursion turns out to be a better sequence to do. Yeah. That makes sense. And then what you're talking about just before that, like talking about the the different languages and which one to pick, it reminds me of the interview that I did with Andreas Stefik and his investigation of basically like a normal programming language versus a placebo language and how like some of them underperformed against the placebo. And I was like, whoa, that's not good language design. <laughs> yeah, Perl is worse than Randomo and Quorum is amazing. Your mention of computer science being a relatively new field, it's, it comes with like some benefits and then some constraints to it. Like I was mentioning with music education, a lot of it's anachronistic. We're building off of ideas from Lowell Mason, who introduced music education in the schools in the 1800s. And like, yeah, that means we have had a lot of trial and error, but it also means we're kind of like set in stone in a lot of ways. And it takes a lot of effort to like get more up to date with modern music making practices and whatnot. But with computer science, it's like the other way where it's like, well, we don't really know what works. So we're just going to try anything and everything. Yeah, absolutely. My teaching changed dramatically when I was introduced to peer instruction. And I was actually blogging when Beth Simon convinced me to finally try it in my class. And I remember the first time that I put up clicker questions using Eric Mazur's peer instruction technique. I talked about it in my blog. It's like, my students don't know this. I can't believe my students don't know this. And now I do peer instruction all the time. First of all, because I deeply believe in active learning and that the idea of active learning, it's constructivist, but it's also so much about motivation. Just get everybody to stop sitting there and falling asleep listening to me and make them do something. That that's just about shifting, helping them to re-engage, getting them to talk to somebody else, making sure that all of their ideas get tested. That's what it's about. But I also do peer instruction all the time to inform my teaching. I always put up questions that I think everybody's going to get, and they don't. It's like, holy cow, I'm not getting this across yet. So 
It's about computing. There's been these wonderful studies of peer instruction with paper and pencil where people have to hand in their votes. It does not work. Computing is actually critical to making things like peer instruction work. But the insight isn't about computing. The insight is about, well, this is how teaching and learning really work. And this is about how hard it is to learn some of these concepts. So at the start of our conversation, you had mentioned that you'd spent some time working with policy in education. And I'm curious if you were to be able to like wave a magic wand and change some kind of a policy in education to have an impact, what would you change and why? I would build computing learning outcomes into the standards for math, science, social science, art, and music. I think that separate computer science standards make it too easy to ignore. Or you create computer science classes that nobody takes. I think by integrating it everywhere, there's so many things that happen once you do that, once you wave that magic wand. Indiana did this. They built their computer science outcomes into their science standards. Massachusetts did this. They built computer science standards into their digital literacy standards. Suddenly in Massachusetts, librarians care about computer science. In Indiana, suddenly all science classes teach something about computer science. It creates a reason for teaching pre-service teachers about computer science. There's a separate non-public policy magic wand that I would love to be able to wave, and that is to require everybody at all universities to take a course in computer science. Make it a general education requirement, like the phys ed requirement, which just about every state has at the undergraduate level. I think if we did this, everybody includes all the pre-service teachers. And if all pre-service teachers had a course in computer science aimed at them, it becomes so much easier to do integration across the board. I tend to think about computing education as being a form of literacy education, that it's really about giving people a tool for them to express themselves, to understand ideas in whatever it is that they're going to be doing in their lives and in their career. The way you get to literacy is not just by teaching it in schools. The way that we got textual literacy or numerical literacy, numeracy, is by making it pervasive in the culture. And then kids learn it because, well, that's what everybody's doing. So the only way you're going to get it in the culture is to make sure that everybody does it. If you build it into university education, then all professionals have some computing. They won't all use it in their lives and their career, but many more will use it than use it now. And that's the best thing we could do for K through 12 computing education. So one magic wand is change universities. Whoa, it's that hard. Let's focus on public policy. If we could integrate computer science into all these other standards, there's a reason for doing pre-service computer science education. There's a way of putting computing in front of everybody. I mean, that's the part that I'm so excited about with the history stuff. Three, 4% of kids take a high school computer science class. Everybody takes history. The difference in diversity between APUS history and APCS principles is mind blowing. APCS principles is like 27% female last time, I think. US history is 56% female. There are six times as many Black students who will take APUS history as take APCS principles. It's something like 14 times more Hispanic students take U.S. history than C.S. principles. If you can put any computing into the history classes, you've made such an advance on giving more students the opportunity to say, 
hey, this is kind of cool. I think I'd like to take more of this. Or computing programming is not scary. Look, I did it before. It's okay. That's the kind of changes in self-efficacy that I'd like to get to. And we only get there if we put computing into everything. Yeah, that's a brilliant solution. That It reminds me a lot of what they did with the technology standards. So like back when I was going through my K-12 tenure, like technology was its own separate class, its own separate thing. You didn't do it in your normal classes, but now they've integrated it so that like you're mentioning, the social study standards will have like technology components and talking about that and using technology. So it makes it so that you're learning how to apply and use the technologies like laptops and whatnot inside of a situation in which you need it for a specific subject area rather than standalone and separate from everything else. So that totally makes sense for you to do that with computer science. And if we were to do this, we'd have to be more flexible about our definition of computer science. I'm a big fan of the everyday computing work in Diana Franklin's lab at University of Chicago. And Katie Rich was lead author on several papers they did about learning trajectories. This idea that there's a whole bunch of ideas you have to know to be able to do computing well. And some of the ideas at the leftmost edge, the start of these trajectories, we're not explicitly teaching to many kids. Like the idea that programs are deterministic. If you run them and they accept no input, nothing from the outside world, they will run exactly the same every time. I got lots of data to show you. Students don't always believe this. They run the program multiple times without changes, thinking, well, maybe something different will happen this time. <laughs> and unless you believe that programs are deterministic, you can't debug, right? It's a critical belief in order to be able to figure out your programs. And this idea we talked earlier about representations, that computers transform representations. Those are not part of university definitions of computer science. They're not part of the K through 12 CS standards but they're absolutely critical ideas, which we could address in just about any subject. But speaking of representations, I'm curious what your thoughts are or recommendations for improving equity and inclusion in CS education. That's a really big one. How do we get computer science to be more diverse? And it's one that I've cared about for a lot of years. Part of doing media computation was by making computing accessible in liberal arts subjects where students would succeed at it, it was automatically getting a more diverse audience to have access to computing education. And it brought more diversity into computing. Soon after we developed the media computation course, and these aren't directly linked things, Georgia Tech decided to create a joint undergraduate degree between liberal arts and computer science. It was called computational media. It came about because as all new majors do, a bunch of researchers in that space said, hey, let's do this, this is fun. I think the course that I created enabled that because more liberal arts students were succeeding at computer science. It was possible to start thinking about doing a joint degree. Computational media became 40% female. It was far more gender diverse than our CS major at Georgia Tech. I think that that gets enabled when you start thinking about making computing fit into a lot of different disciplines to a lot of different needs. So I think that by making computing integrate into lots of other subjects, we are going to be about expanding our definition of what is computing, who should be doing computing, what they're going to do with computing. And I think that opens the door for more diverse participation in computing. I'm cautious. I write about this in my blog post where I started using critical feminist theory. I'm cautious of the goal that says 
we need to get more black engineers into Google or more women engineers into Amazon. Because I feel that that's this perspective of, well, if we can only get the black students to act like the white students, or if we can only get the women to take on the same jobs as the men, it's not terrible, but it's also not as powerful as saying, well, what would a female computer science look like? And how would we create a computer science that speaks to the values and communities of people from marginalized populations? So I'm really interested in thinking about computing becoming more things, having a pluralistic computer science and a pluralistic computing education. Lots of languages, lots of perspectives. A pet peeve of mine is web pages and tweets and headlines, X language is dead. Here are all the languages that have now lost. Why didn't these languages succeed? I mean, we're judging success by what gets picked up by the mainstream of developers, which are mostly white nation males. I would rather say these languages didn't die. They're just used by different populations. They're being used for different purposes. From a computer science perspective, I actually just saw one of these pieces. I mean, they're pet peeves, but I click on them anyway. <laughs> they're making the argument Python and R are dead. What does that mean that R is dead or Python is dead? Statisticians really like these languages. They're used a lot, and that's a positive thing. Yeah, and I like the way that you framed the like challenging some of the assumptions in just increasing numbers based on demographic information. Like Freire really likes to talk about how you need to make sure that when you're trying to bring up that you start from within and through conversation, through dialogue, rather than this like ontological or epistemological colonization where you're saying your way of knowing and understanding needs to conform to my ways of knowing and being and understanding. And so like having that conversation that challenges, well, what does it mean to be a computer scientist? I really like the way that you frame that with it. Do you know Ron Iglash? I don't think so. He does culturally situated design tools. He's an ethno-computationalist and an ethno-mathematician. And so he looks at things like he talks about heritage algorithms, the algorithms that certain Aboriginal people may have used in how they lay out their villages, or the algorithms that are used in how he talks about hand-printed cloth in various populations. He works with a variety of different groups. Let me pause. There's this notion in NSF about the future of work. What do we do when AI and technology puts lots of people out of work? Ron thinks about it in exactly the opposite direction. He says, you know, there are all of these artisanal economies. People are always going to value things that are made by hand. How could we use AI and robotics and technology to support artisans? Artisan economies, I mean, artisans are happy people. People like doing things with their hands. They like to make individual things. How do we support their economy and how do we use technology to make what they do more profitable so that they're more successful? Not necessarily turning them into computer scientists, though we want to make sure they know about their technology so they can adapt it to new purposes, like the modders that we were talking about earlier. Yep. But it's about making the computing serve their needs as opposed to saying, now let me train you all to become Amazon engineers. That's not the goal. The goal is how do we help artisans to continue doing what they're doing? Because it's a good thing that they're doing. It's good for the economy. It's good for happiness. But we have to think about the technology not taking away their jobs. I'm curious, how do you try and stave off the burnout that can come with your output? So you're able to write a lot, both from a research side of things and then from like your blog. 
you're teaching classes, you are doing research, like there's a ton of things that you're doing. Like you did the keynote at Sixty back when it was in person before it shut down last year. Like how do you prevent that burnout that can come with this high demand in a career in CS education research? I can't tell you that I don't get burnt out. I will tell you that it helps that I have a really good family life. You know, we take off certain time every night. You know, we have dinner together and just talk. We can make sure that we take off hours and spend time together. I run. The things that one picks up during the pandemic is I've become a big fan of meditation. I try to do meditation a couple times a day, and it really helps to be mindful and to ground myself. And that's helped a lot with stress and sleep. So I actually have fun doing this. I do computing because I enjoy it. My wife and I, Barbara Erickson, who's been my research collaborator on lots of things. We wrote the media computation books together and did Georgia Computes and ESEP together. Barbara sees computing as being a puzzle. She loves to figure out how the algorithm works and how to make it better and, and what's going on here. I've never had that puzzle perspective. I've never gotten into computing as problem solving. For me, programming is this cool set of Lego bricks. And I can put them together in all kinds of different ways to make things. And if it gets hard, I sort of like, okay, I'm going to do the simplest, dumbest, inefficientest way of making this work. When Barbara and I were writing the books, I would leave notes in the source code. Okay, Barb, I know this is a sucky algorithm. Could you please just fix it and not give me grief about it? Because she's much better at that than me. So I get to play with Tinker Toys and uh, Erector Sets all day long. It's great. <laughs> it definitely resonates and makes me laugh. There are times where I look at the things that I'm able to create and explore through my job. I'm like, wow, this is fantastic. Not many people can say that they are able to have fun doing these things and then have fun creating things that actually have a, a large impact. Like the boot up curriculum, it's free. Anyone can use it and it's used around the world. So like, that's awesome. Not many people can say that. Yeah, it's true. What do you wish there was more research on that could inform your own practices? I'd like to know more about where non-CS teachers could use computing. And this is a hard area to do research in. It's not so hard to identify the challenges students have in learning something. It is harder to figure out which subset of those might be addressed by appropriate computational tools. But I think that that's an area of research that would be important to work on. We do a lot in the sense of we work with social studies educators and math educators and say, okay, students have a hard time understanding this about counting processes. Mm, that's good to know. Anything about process is something that computing can likely help at, but then trying to figure out what's the right notation or representation that students will understand. Mm. It's this recognition that it's a design task too. So just knowing the problem isn't enough to solve the problem. A lot of what my students work on creates questions about what comes next. So I just had a student graduate. I was actually be able to at her hooding on Friday morning in Atlanta at Georgia Tech, Amber Solomon. Dr. Amber Solomon's dissertation was on the role of embodiment in learning computer science. We use gesture. What does that gesture mean? I mean, we have these great videos. Amber studied a whole bunch of videos of people lecturing about things like recursion and lists. And you have people doing this. What are they pointing at? <laughs> There's no there there. You can't point at elements of an array. Right. <laughs> All right. And if you do this, what if the student's impression of an array is actually like this? 
they're pointing horizontally and they think about it vertically. Does that create a conflict for them? And then she studied their language. The language we use to teach computer science is so embodied, but we don't think about it and we don't design it. When somebody says, okay, now we're here in the code, what does that really mean? We somehow jump down inside the code? I think what you're actually meaning is we're imagining an execution of the code and the program counter is on this line right now. But to jump from all of that to we're here in the code, how many students are getting confused that they're not making that connection of shifting metaphors and shifting language? Right. And we don't know anything about this. We now know from her dissertation that there's a lot of embodiment in the way that people talk about computer science. But we don't yet know how the students understand all of that embodiment. So that's a big area of research. Katie Cunningham just finished her dissertation. She's presenting at CHI, I think on Thursday, on purpose-first programming, where she's teaching people programming in terms of pieces of code that help them achieve their goals, where they can just assemble these pieces of code. If you are gonna think about it in a derogatory sense, you're saying, oh, they're just learning plug and chug programming. But what she showed is the students think about how they tailor the code, how they change the pieces of code for their needs, and how they debug in terms of the semantics of those chunks of code, not the individual lines. It's so important. It really led to high self-efficacy. Students were successful at coding with these programming plans that she identified. But we don't know is what happens next. Can they learn more plans? Do they transfer that knowledge? Can they start learning the details of those individual lines of code? Does the purpose-first programming go on to something else? We don't know any of that either. And there's a whole bunch of sort of technical research that I'd like to see done too. Since I've gotten to Michigan, I'm building things again, which is great fun. But you know what? Web programming is really hard. It's way hard. It really needs to be made way easier. I was using a tool called GP, which is a general purpose programming tool. John Maloney, the guy who originally implemented Scratch, has been developing GP, along with Jens Monig, who did Snap, also worked on GP. And one of the things about that's cool about GP is that it's the speed of Python. So you can do things in GP like real-time sound visualization. I built real-time sound visualizers with GP, which is like super cool. But there's very few things like GP, and John hasn't been able to keep GP supported. I think there's a whole lot of tool space that needs to be filled with research to make it easier for us to do things like task-specific programming languages for teachers. And what's something that you're working on that you could use help with? Like a listener who might be able to help you with blank, what would that be? We've got a bunch of tools now, some of which like our history tools we're pushing out now that we've been building task-specific languages for combinatorics and English language arts. I'd like to connect with teachers who say, that sounds cool. I'll actually put this in my classroom if you make these changes. Mm. I actually would welcome that because right now we've got tools that teachers are saying, oh, I like your tool way better than any of these others, but they're still not adopting them. Understanding what gets a teacher, a non-CS teacher to adopt a CS-based tool is really hard. So we're trying to shift our research into more of a co-design model. What we're doing now is we're building tools. I work closely with my collaborators in social studies and math education. And then we do teacher workshops and say, here's the tools. The teachers say, cool, silence. Rather, we'd like to work with a handful of teachers who say, okay, I promise you I will use this, but I need X and Y features. Okay, I'll give you X and Y features. Now let's study what happens. 
because we haven't really been able to study much classroom implementation yet. Now, part of this is the pandemic, right? That makes everything harder for everybody. Yeah, hopefully there's somebody who's listening that's got some teachers in mind that they could reach out to you and recommend them to actually assist with that. Do you have questions for myself or to the field? I'm going to generalize that last one. If you could have any kind of programming language you'd like for your classroom, what would you want? A lot of the work that I've been doing was inspired by a conversation I had with Colby Toffel-Grohl, who is a science education researcher at Utah State. And she said to me, you know what would really change my world is if I could type in a scientific equation, a mathematical equation directly into Scratch. So rather than drag and drop blocks to do a mathematical equation, let me just type the equation. And better yet, if the equation could look like the way it looks in the math book or the science book. And that just blew my mind because, I mean, we're not actually adding anything computational to Scratch. What we're changing is the user interface. Right. And that's what made me realize that a lot of what teachers want is not about adding anything new computationally. It's just, could you make the user interface mesh better with my class? So I'd love to hear more of those things. I would love it if Snap did X. I could use CodeApp, but I want to be able to see a textual coding language on top of CodeApp. Whatever it is, those sorts of things, because it's just the interface. Now, I don't want to belittle doing user interface. I work with HCI researchers. I see myself as an HCI researcher. That's hard work, but that's not like inventing a new programming language. That's about taking a little bit of programming and wrapping a new interface around it. And that's doable. And I think that's really important. Yeah, I agree. It'd make my life a lot easier if I could just type it out into Scratch rather than having to drag in all the different operators when <laughs> creating something. <laughs> yeah. Are there questions that I haven't asked that you'd like to discuss? You had this great comment about what is holding back educators to the field or what we can do about it. And I think the thing which gets in the way a lot is CS arrogance. That's not real programming. I mean, you're learning Scratch. Maybe one day you can go learn a real programming language. <laughs> right. I think that we see computer science as being owned by a computing elite, as opposed to being something we want everybody to have access to, that we want to push it out. And it's about sharing this wealth as opposed to just being kept with the wealthy landowners. I'm part of this task force. I'm a co-chair with a computational cosmologist, Gus Everard. Such a cool job. This task force is defining computing education for undergrads in the College of Literature, Science, and the Arts. It's the largest college at the University of Michigan. It's sort of the liberal arts and sciences part. And we're trying to define computing education for all of these folks. A couple of weeks ago, Gus and I made our preliminary report to the executive committee of the College of LSA. And one of the members, raise your hand and says, you know, I got one of your requests for an interview or a survey, but I didn't respond because you said you wanted people who do computing education and I don't do computing education. Now that I see what you mean, could you use the word digital instead of computing, please? And then another member of the committee, yeah, I noticed that too. If you use the words computing or computational, that's just a conversation stopper. I think you should change your language. And those two comments I've been thinking about for weeks now. It makes me realize the culture and the perceptions that we have set up around our field. And I think that if we really want to reach CS for all, CS has to become a service field rather than an elite. 
we have to think about serving all these other fields and building things that they want, as opposed to saying, oh, but wait, we have to teach them this way because otherwise it's not real computer science. Yeah, that'd be interesting to way to kind of step around some of the baggage that comes with what does it mean to be a computer scientist if it were defined as something different. But then we get into the arguments that we get into with like computational thinking with, well, what's the definition of this thing? Yeah. When you list things that I used to believe, I used to believe that we could define computational thinking. I have now done it so often in my blog, I totally give up on that. <laughs> yeah. I'm much more interested in putting computing into classes that serve those classes' needs. Data literacy is hard. Counting processes are hard. Thinking about language in English language arts is hard. Computing can help with those and make them more fun. Let's do that. And let's not worry about whether it's computer science or computational thinking. I like that. So I'll ask the last question. So where might people go to connect with you and the organizations that you work with? So probably best way is through my blog, computinged.wordpress.com. From there, I link to just about everything, all the papers that I work with. I've mentioned some of the groups that I work with, like the ESEP Alliance. While I'm no longer involved, it's still going on. I'm so glad that other principal investigators will come along to carry the torch. So ESEPalliance.org. I think they're up to 23 states in Puerto Rico that they're working with, which is really tremendous. You Google Mark Guzdal, there's not that many of us. You might get confused with my son, Matthew Guzdal, who does machine learning and creativity at the University of Alberta, but we're pretty distinguishable. And with that, that concludes this week's episode of the CSKA podcast. I really hope you enjoyed this interview with Mark. I know I certainly did. I hope you consider checking out the show notes to learn more about the different topics that we discussed or to reach out to Mark or myself to collaborate on future research or to simply go to my website and check out all of the free resources that are for computer science educators, including the podcasts, presentations, publications, lesson plans, etc. that I have created for the kids that I work with and for the nonprofit Buddha PD, and all of which is 100% free to use. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you're all staying safe and are having a wonderful week, and I hope you stay tuned next week for another Unpacking Scholarship episode, and two weeks from now for another interview.